Welcome to Hudson Valley Uncensored. My name is Brett Freeman. I'm the publisher and owner of a media company in the Hudson Valley, New York. I launched this podcast, Hudson Valley Uncensored, to highlight and discuss topics without fear. This is not a conservative podcast, nor is it a liberal podcast. This is an American podcast. My aim is to have a free exchange of ideas and an open and honest discussion on the issues of the day. I'm outraged by censorship, and I dislike groupthink. I don't care if you are on the left or the right. I want to interview people and explore ideas, regardless of the politics that are outside mainstream conventional thinking. I want to ask the questions that others won't. How fragile are we as a country that we are raising our children to be afraid of ideas? At Hudson Valley Uncensored, we won't be afraid. My intention is to stay true to each of you, true to myself, and to interview people who will also be true to our audience. Again, my name is Brett Freeman. Welcome to Hudson Valley Uncensored. Today we have Susan Salamon. Susan Salamon is the co-founder and executive director of Drug Crisis in Our Backyard, which was founded after the tragic loss of Justin to a heroin overdose. Susan was born and raised in New York State. She earned a BS in education, master's degree in counseling, and master's degree in supervision. She has recently received her credential as a substance abuse counselor. She was appointed to Governor Cuomo's Heroin Task Force and is a member of the New York State Office of Alcohol and Substance Abuse Insurance and Provider Workgroup. And she's also received the Senate 2015 Award for Woman of Distinction. Susan is currently a family coach working individually and leading support groups for families struggling with the effects of addiction. She currently lives in Brewster with her husband, Steve. Welcome, Susan. Hi, Brett. Thanks for inviting me on. Thank you for being on it. Thank you very much. So, Susan, obviously... You wouldn't have entered this mission-based field without the biggest tragedy that a person can experience, which is the tragic death of your son, Justin. Please tell us about Justin. Okay. Justin is the oldest of my four children. They grew up in Mayapak. So we moved to Mayapak in 1988. So Justin was just about uh, five years old. He went to kindergarten in Mayapak and he went through the school system and he was kind of a quiet kid, as opposed to my other children who were wild animals, but uh, they were all boys. So Justin seemed to be more thoughtful and quiet and quite attentive, to tell you the truth. Like he could sit with blocks for a long time. So he didn't seem to have any kind of ADHD. At 16 years old, he started to experiment with marijuana. We found the pot in his room in a pair of his pants. And we asked him to go see a therapist about it because we were concerned. So he went to see someone and that therapist told us that uh, he was okay. He wouldn't have an addiction problem. The therapist never really interviewed us to find out if there was addiction in our family, which certainly there is. I think that back in the day, like he was 16 then. So that was about the year 2000, around there. It was a little before that. It was in the late 90s. So I don't know. It was different. People They weren't talking about family propensity for this disease at that time. It wasn't even called a disease at that time. So he escalated when he went to college to stronger drugs. 
when he was 23 years old, he started to fool around with Percocet, which were, you know, put out there by Big Pharma, who uh, we'll talk about later. They were black market drugs on the street, and he experimented with them, and they're very, very addictive, and he became addicted to them. We found out from his girlfriend that he was using Percocet, and she left him. She told us before she left, at least she told us. So we met with him again and we asked him to see someone about it, but we didn't realize how addictive and not, I, I would say that 90% of the people on the planet didn't understand how addictive these drugs were, the opiates, Percocet, Vicodin, and they were being prescribed like candy. And if you had a backache, you could get it. So many people were prescribed into addiction. I wouldn't say my son was. I don't think he was. I think that he experimented with them and he got addicted. And at 25 years old, he started using heroin because he could no longer support his habit. And when we found out that he did go away for treatment and he did come back and he did relapse and he was in a research study for naltrexone, which is now used widely for medication-assisted treatment. And he did very well in that program at Columbia University. He was clean for six to seven months. And then once the program ended, he relapsed. And uh, there are a lot of things we learned, Brett, as you know, because I've written about them in your paper. But uh, he passed away May 29, 2012, from a heroin overdose. And that's when we started the organization with the help of your newspaper, putting my letter out. And then Carol Christensen called me actually Lou called me and said that he had buried his son Eric that morning and Eric was a detective for the New York City Police Department so he had his own apartment he had a girlfriend he was being prescribed so many opiates you can't imagine how many bottles they found in his apartment at that time so we started drug crisis in our backyard at that time and we're still out there COVID has put limits on what we could do and who we could talk to but we're helping families. One thing I thought was interesting that you said is, you know, Justin, you felt for a while was on the path to recovery. So is treatment for heroin addiction, is that a lifelong treatment? Does it ever end? You know, I'm involved with an organization now that we do education for anyone that's living with addiction. And we find out that about 75% of the people that get clean, get clean without treatment. So without formal treatment, without going inpatient, without that whole, you know, series of treatment, first you go to detox, then you go to inpatient, then you go to outpatient, then you go somewhere else to a therapist. Many people do get clean without going through that. It is a lifelong disease, but it really depends on the person. If they need to continue having therapy around it, if they continue to need medication around it. Some people need medication for life. So methadone's been around since 1964. And some people stay on methadone for life because that's what they need to stay productive and not use drugs that will do more damage to their body and they won't be able to sustain a job. You know, there are a lot of other medications out now for opiate use disorder, which is, it's fabulous. Uh, In 2002, Suboxone sort of came on the into the playing field here in the United States. And Justin was on Suboxone and many people are on Suboxone. And they're able to stay free from heroin because of these medications. We find that a lot of people cannot stay clean without the medications. 
So you were saying before that your family has addiction in it and that some people don't receive treatment, but are able to get off drugs like opioids. So are some people just more prone? Is it something in the brain or something physically where some people are more prone to the addiction and are less capable of of recovery? Well, let's say there's, there's reasons why people are prone to addiction. The second part of your statement was sort of like a causal and effect mm-hmm. and less prone to recovery. I don't know about that. Okay. So I think that people can recover as a matter of, they can recover. I know they can recover because I work with them and I see them and they're friends of mine. They're my friend's children who we've worked with that have recovered and have five years and now have a baby and, you know, they've gone on. So I remember Brett being at my son's funeral and my son was in AA. He went to all the meetings. He had friends there. They were very supportive of him and he was well-liked. He was a personable guy. Somebody came up to me and said, you know, some people have a virus, but Justin had pneumonia. If you look at it, you know, that's such a great metaphor because he had it so bad. It was very, very bad. He had a very bad addiction problem. So some people have it much worse than other people. And if that has anything to do with, you know, it's hereditary, you have it worse because you both your parents had it. I don't know that answer. There are a lot of risk factors for it. Hereditary being one of them, running in your family is a big one, starting at a very young age. And we'll get into the marijuana conversation because that's what you know we're talking about here. The younger you start, the more chances you're going to have of having an addiction problem because of the development of the brain. So also the family you come from, like your emotional support and also your own self, your own resilience. Like I have four kids and you have two. I bet they're both so different from each other. Of course, absolutely. And Uh, my four boys, they were all different. They grew up in the same house, but they were all different. So I would say Justin had the least ability to cope of the four of them. But this is all in retrospect, you know? um, And I guess in retrospect, knowing what you know now as someone who has become an expert in addiction, in the opioid epidemic, do you think that you would have been able to help him better with the education that you have now on the topic? Absolutely. No question. I'm not going to call myself an expert, okay? I'm going to say I know a lot about opiates and opiate use disorder, and let's leave it at that. But there's definitely things we would have done differently if we would have known. So at that time, back in 2012 and before that, because he was using for 10 years before that, whether it be pot or alcohol or pills, he didn't start the heroin until about four years before he passed away. No one was talking about it. There was a huge stigma associated with it. And there still is, but at least people are talking about it. A lot more people are talking about it. And I remember Brett, an article came out in your paper from the Lake Mayapak Pharmacy. And he wrote about his niece who passed away hmm. and he wanted to bring it out. After that, then I wrote about my life, my story. And boy, we got so many calls because people were not talking about it. People are talking about it. Let's face it. It's a different landscape than it was back in 2012. That's actually leads to my next question. I think you and I have known one another for about nine years, which is you know when you submitted the opinion piece to Mayapak News. Uh, Nine years ago, as you said, nobody was really talking about the opioid epidemic. Families who have lost loved ones, I think, felt ashamed and they hid it from the public. 
And they still do, by the way. I mean, I know that as publisher of a newspaper, I mean, we hear about teenage deaths and young adult deaths all the time. And it's always kind of whispered, oh, you know, people think it was an overdose, but nobody really talks about it. You instead were really incredibly brave. And you wrote that opinion piece in Maypac News, where you openly spoke about Justin's overdose. What led you to do this? I was writing about Justin's story, the whole story. I was writing about it in the hopes that it would have a good ending. You know, I had a lot of that article written before it all went Mm. bad. And then I just had to put it out there. I, you know, what would I have said? Like Carol says that all the time. What would I have said? My son had a heart attack. You know, it was ridiculous. He was a young man. They were healthy young men. What are you going to say? Oh, we had a stroke. My son had a brain injury before he died. He overdosed in October. He had a brain injury and then he died in May. And it was absolutely tragic. There was no other way really for me to move forward but to write this article. And it was a call to action. It wasn't just, this is our story. Last paragraph was a call to action to come to our event that we were having on August 9th, which was just two months after he died. Really, At the Mayapak Library, correct? At the Mayapak Library. That's yeah. right. Has there been progress over the past nine years? Oh, absolutely. There's been really a lot of progress. And there's a lot of prevention coalitions that are funded by the federal government. And they're all talking about opiates now also and have been for the last, I'd say, five years that there's more talk about it, probably even longer than that. So we're in 21 now, probably when all these kids started dying and the numbers started to escalate of overdose deaths in the United States. And I mean, in New York and the Narcan came out for public use. All this happened at the same time. In around 2012 or 2013, there was the I Stop law, which told the doctors you cannot prescribe these pills without checking this database. So it was all sort of happening at the same time. So right now, there's so much talk about it because we've had so many deaths this year. We've had a 21% increase in drug overdose deaths. Is that because of the quarantining and the epidemic or the pandemic with COVID? Probably, yep. Probably. So it's had 88,000 deaths this year. So it's May to May, I believe. I have it written down somewhere. But yeah, it's from August 2020. So so the year up until August 2020. So the year before that. Have we as a country, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but as a country, have we handled the pandemic incorrectly? Because Again, we're so concerned about COVID and the COVID has been a tragic tragedy worldwide with millions of deaths worldwide. But I think our response to it as a society has probably led to deaths in other diseases and other areas, including addiction. I'm sure alcoholism as well. And so, you know, what are your thoughts about that? Nobody really knew what was happening with COVID when it first started. We just didn't know. No one knew. I mean, you know, like... How bad it can it be? So, uh, you know, I can't even weigh in on whether it was handled correctly or not. I think that time will answer that question. But it definitely led to more overdose deaths because treatment centers were closing or taking less people because they couldn't take as many people or if they had a COVID outbreak, then they couldn't take more people. And also treatment facilities that do outpatient were either doing it via Zoom or on the phone. I mean, it's really hard to do 
a session with a client on the phone because you don't know what they're going to have uh, a drink in front of them. Mm. You know, they might be uh, snorting cocaine while they're talking to you on the phone. You don't know what's going on. Well, you know, you're talking to them for 45 minutes and then they're going about. There's no eyes on the person or see their how they look, how they're dressed. Do they smell? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I'm sure that's the case with everything in our society. You know, not just people attending AA or or other um, treatment uh, groups, just uh, people in general. I mean, people who maybe didn't even have a problem before the pandemic, who might have developed problems, and whether people stopped going to church or stopped, uh, you know, seeing people in the office, it's kind of difficult when you don't see that your friend or colleague or acquaintance might have developed some kind of problem, you know, in their absence. Kind of easy to hide from uh, the rest of society when you're kind of holed away in your house. Um, we know that has been a lot of emotional trauma during this period for people because they have a hotline that you can call if you're having an emotional problem. They trained a lot of counselors to take these calls. So it has affected, I think, all areas of our lives. Recently, you were very critical of the opioid settlement in New York State. Please explain the settlement, explain what happened. Okay, well, talk about the settlement with McKinsey and Company. They're a distributor of opiates. So they settled for a certain amount of money and New York State was getting $32 million. Initially, back in the day when, when these companies were being sued, the money was supposed to be earmarked for treatment, prevention and recovery services so that more money would be funneled into the system so that more people could be helped and maybe some supportive housing could go up and some way to have a safety net for the people that were getting better trying to get better. And so 32 million came into New York state. It was in the budget to be used for the original purposes of it, but it wasn't used that way. What they finally agreed upon in the budget was uh, 11 million went to the department of correction. It was medication assisted treatment in the prisons. And that's really a good thing. 11 million went to that. The other 21 million that was left went into the general fund, which can be used to pave the streets out there on Route 22. It may not look like it went into the general fund, but what was done was the money that the state usually gives to Oasis for treatment, prevention, and recovery services was decreased by 21 million. Why did this happen? I mean, is it because of just a budget crisis in New York State? Yeah, that's what I think. That is the impression that because of what's happened with COVID and a lot of expenses that the state has because of COVID, including some things having to do with addiction, that the state is using the money for general purposes. But there is more money coming down the pike and a lot of it. And if they're looking at perhaps as much as $500 million coming into New York State. So there is right now advocacy for people to demand that that money go into a special fund appropriated, sort of like into a, a special bank account. And that bank account will only be used for the purposes of treatment, prevention, recovery service. It could be harm reduction. There are a lot of different parts of it, but for the most part, it'll be used as intended when pharmaceutical companies were originally sued. I've never discussed this with you before. I'm surprised I've never mentioned this. I think it's actually a little bit serendipitous that we befriended one another. When I was 18 years old in 1997, I got a summer temp job 
doing data entry, I, I believe it was in Norwalk, Connecticut. It was at the headquarters of Purdue Pharma. I was processing applications for indigent patients to obtain OxyContin. I was 18 years old. I was getting paid, I think, $12 an hour, which at the time was a ton of money for an 18-year-old. And all I was told is that the patients were in a lot of pain and that the company was being philanthropic by helping out poor people who couldn't afford the medicine. So I thought I was doing important work. I want to emphasize the people in the room with me, in in the office where I was located, they were all in low-level administrative positions. So in hindsight, it feels a little bit like we were helping out a monster. Obviously, I had no idea that 15 years later, I would befriend someone who advocates for victims of this company. Now, I do hear some people say we've gone too far and that there are people in tremendous pain who have difficulty obtaining the only drugs able to help them. Where do you stand on that? I agree with that. I'm not going to say they went too far. I don't, I'm not going to use those words. I don't think that's correct. I think that some people are in tremendous pain and they need the medication. So we need the discretion of the doctors to, you know, say, well, this person needs this medication and, you know, they have terrible arthritis or whatever they have, and they need the medication. I know that the doctors are not prescribing. They are not prescribing. They're just not prescribing. So I kind of agree that doctors, you know, they need to be diligent in understanding addiction, which they aren't, first of all, they really aren't. And, you know, they don't get many hours of of education in addiction. So they need to be diligent in that. And they need to be use their discretion and try to discern when the pain is so bad that these pills are required. And I think that they were just giving out pills for any reason, just get people out of the office, give them these pills, this will take care of it. And that had a lot to do with the marketing that was being done by Purdue Pharma and the other culprits involved. I mean, I guess one way to handle it is we should definitely prosecute doctors if doctors are abusing their own authority just to try to make money off of the prescriptions. So obviously doctors who are trying to help their patients need to have that kind of discretion as well. So um, in March of this year, New York State legalized recreational marijuana. I recently interviewed the vice president of marketing for a marijuana dispensary in Massachusetts. He told me that New York's legislation is the single most important act in cannabis history because the importance of New York's size as a state in our country and its impact on the culture for the rest of the country. I've told you where I stand on this. Uh, One of my goals on this podcast is to be as open and honest to my audience as possible. So I will reveal that I am a consumer of recreational marijuana. I want to point out that I've never consumed it in front of my children, in part because of the stigma. And I will say that, you know, when it comes to alcohol, I enjoy a scotch on the rocks. And my kids do indeed see me drink a scotch while watching TV or before dinner. One of the reasons I drink scotch is because I find it very relaxing. And in fact, I can pour myself a drink and let it sit there for 20 minutes before even taking my first sip. Just having it in front of me relaxes me. That's your brain. That's my brain. You're absolutely right. Before marijuana was legalized in Massachusetts, I rarely touched the stuff. And the reason I didn't is because I I had a tremendous fear of consuming marijuana laced with something far more harmful. When Massachusetts legalized recreational marijuana, I found it comforting to know that I was purchasing a drug that was regulated by the state of Massachusetts. So anyone who says that legalizing recreational marijuana won't normalize it is full of it. It will absolutely lead to more people consuming it. And I'm a living example of that. Back during my days as a college student, I studied at American University in Washington, D.C. I actually lived with one of the campus drug dealers. 
he was my roommate. And I saw how harmful consuming pot nonstop could be for someone. My roommate smoked it from morning to night. During my junior year, I stopped living with him. Then I studied overseas in Jerusalem during my spring semester. When I came back my senior year, my former roommate was completely whacked out. I think he may have experienced some sort of psychotic episode. He might have had schizophrenia. So I witnessed what I believe were the harmful effects of marijuana. I can't say for certain as a psychotic break may have been due to other drugs or it may have been pre-existing before the drug use. But I do caution anyone who says that there are zero long-term bad effects. In addition, the marijuana being cultivated today is far stronger than marijuana was 20 years ago. What I've also discovered is that there is absolutely a psychological addiction to marijuana. When everything seems kind of rosy while you're high, it's of course difficult to abstain from it. So anyone who says it's not addictive is wrong about that. I've also discovered that marijuana can easily go from being kind of a means to an end where you get high to experience some sort of enlightenment to getting high as an end unto itself where marijuana itself becomes sort of a god. So that is when I believe marijuana can be abusive. I would love to hear your thoughts about the legalization of recreational marijuana in New York, particularly in terms of the theory that marijuana can be a gateway drug. I think we know for sure that there is a correlation but a correlation is different than a causation. So in other words, people who have done heavy drugs like heroin are probably the same people less deterred to do drugs that are not nearly as harmful. So that's an obvious correlation. But do we know if there's a causation where having consumed marijuana leads to heavier drugs? That's interesting because you cited all the things I was going to cite. So Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. So I will say that I'm not an expert on this topic, marijuana. But I work with families that have children that are addicted to usually stronger drugs than marijuana. And 100% of them either started with marijuana or alcohol. So if that's the case, if 100% of them started with alcohol or marijuana, and then they went on to stronger drugs, why are we putting another drug out there? I am absolutely against legalization of marijuana. I understand all the reasons why it sounds good to legalize marijuana, but I am against it because not all of the people that smoke it will get addicted and move on to stronger drugs or have a psychotic episode like your friend did, but a percentage of that group of people will. So why are we legalizing? We are legalizing marijuana to make money. The state now has become a drug deal. Here we were Years ago, arresting the drug dealers. Now, the state is the drug dealers. For me, it doesn't even make sense. The amount of money that is going into stopping or helping people, first of all, stopping people from using drugs by prevention, and then helping people to stop using drugs, and then to help people to stay off drugs, the amount of money that's going into that is enormous. Why are we putting another drug on the market that can lead to more of this? It just doesn't make any sense. I can't get my brain around it. I guess, what are your thoughts on using marijuana in a medicinal way? And look, I also realize, you know, it's very easy for people to get their medicinal cards claiming that they're a patient to consume marijuana. So I do realize that is easy, but it is also known to help cancer patients. My grandfather was died a couple of years ago. He was in his 90s and had colon cancer. And 
he consumed marijuana to help him feel better. I know people do consume marijuana when they're undergoing chemotherapy and, and in order to help them regain their appetites. So what, what's your thoughts on that? Uh, first of all, I have a marijuana card because I wanted to see how easy it was to get. And it was like very easy. You just had to pay for it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I think that people that really need marijuana and it's a medicine to them will go through the trouble to get it through a dispensary that sells the stuff. So I'm, I'm good yeah. with it. I'm okay yeah. with medical. Look, medical marijuana was legalized a few years ago because he was laying the groundwork for this legalization of recreational marijuana. There's no question in my mind that that had to be done first in order for the norm, you know, the norm, we were told you were talking about the norm earlier to now, now we're going to legalize marijuana recreationally. And to me, that societal norm is unacceptable. It's unacceptable. So I have some information from Nora Volkow. She's an MD. She's so, she's brilliant, actually, really smart. She is director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse. And as she says, she's definitely against legalization of recreational marijuana. And she says, I've seen her talk. She is just so smart, Brett. You should check her out. But this is one statement she said, do we want to be a nation of stone people in an era of globalization in which competition is fierce? Let's learn from history. And let's learn from history many things. But this one is, she's talking about, England helped subdue China by bringing opium to that country. It's an incredible way to undermine the population. And I am afraid of that. And especially after going through this whole COVID thing, I am afraid of that. I'm afraid of people being stoned, going to work, getting in cars. I mean, that's going to happen. Not to mention the kids. Let's talk about the kids, okay? We do a scholarship for high school students in Putnam County. We give them $500 each towards their college education. And one article, one um, essay that came in to me, this was a young 17-year-old talking about her experience with vaping and how she got her supply from older students on the bus. And if you don't think that's going to happen with pot, you're naive to think it's not going to happen with pot. And unfortunately, vaping is definitely easy to hide for sure. It's much easier than having to impair the drug in other ways, just smoke the drug. You know, vaping is you know, a device where basically you press a button and nobody would really know. So uh, you're absolutely right about that. I yeah. mean, you could vape pot. I mean, nobody sees it. It's in your hand, it's, you know, yeah. easy. The point yeah. is she said she got addicted to vaping because it was easy for her to get. Okay, so you weren't talking about pot with her vaping. No, no, I'm talking about nicotine. Okay. I would like to note that you, Susan, you've been at the forefront in New York State, perhaps nationwide, in terms of changing society's perception of opioid abuse, where we used to treat it as a legal matter. We now view it as a brain and physical disorder. I've heard people say that it took affluent white people to experience the tragedy of opioid addiction in their families to prompt the change in terms of how society views it. Today, during the whole legalization debate over marijuana, one thing that proponents of legalized marijuana have emphasized is that minorities have been disproportionately impacted in terms of arrests. And so there is an element of racism in terms of how our laws have been applied. So should that impact our thoughts and how we 
uh, should treat marijuana as a society, or are we instead using the disproportional legal impact on minorities as a rhetorical tool? So my opinion on this is that marijuana should be decriminalized. It's a little late to the game here because it is legalized, but there's a difference between decriminalization and legalization. And decriminalization is something that could have taken that whole subject matter off the table. What does decriminalization look like? You don't get uh, prison time for carrying around weed. But instead, the state would seek treatment. Is that what you're saying? It depends on what uh, you know amount you're talking about. Again, are they dealing it? So then it becomes a different issue. But not to arrest someone for smoking a joint. So we're talking mm-hmm. about personal use of recreational use. Okay, let's compare it with recreational use. So we're comparing it to recreational use. Someone is using marijuana recreationally. Don't arrest them for it. They weren't even arresting because I can smell it all over the place before it was legalized. But right now, everybody thinks it is legalized. Everyone thinks it's it was legalized before it was legalized. The kids in the school were saying marijuana is legal. It wasn't legal at the time, but it is now. So we follow Smart Approaches to Marijuana. Dr. Kevin Sabet, he's come to talk at several of our presentations, but one in particular, we focused on him. Uh, I think that was March of probably 2018. And he's just so smart. And he's been fighting this battle in different states. Every state that it comes up in, Kevin Sabet is there fighting this battle against legalization. And he has a book, it's called uh, Reef for Sanity. And uh, he just came out with another book, it's called Smokescreen. But he believes, and I believe, this is big tobacco. No question, big tobacco. You're saying big tobacco is a proponent of this? It's behind it. Okay. Okay, this is now big marijuana, okay? But it is, it's big tobacco. You know, look what they did to the, the cigarette industry, all right, the societal norms. I know decades ago, they'd have advertisements where doctors said it was healthy for you. And they did the same thing for cocaine, and I guess in the 1920s or whatever it was. Well, we're not talking that far back with cigarettes. Yeah. I mean, big tobacco was brought to task on it, just like big pharma was brought to task on it. So why haven't we learned our lesson? Why are we doing it again? You know, just think about this for a minute. Okay, when your kids are grown up, they're in their whatever, their 20s now, Smoking pot is just going to be the same thing as drinking. Yeah, yeah. I understand all the reasons why it should be legal. I just can't wrap my brain around the fact that I think that it's a mistake. In the long run, it's going to be a big mistake. And actually, I read an article this morning that in the Denver Gazette, his name is Rob Corey. He was one of the architects of legalized marijuana in Colorado. He was one of the big players And he came out in the Denver Gazette uh, April 4th and talked about how he was naive. He didn't really understand what the results were going to be. It's a really great article. You should take a look at it. And he talks about still being in favor of legalization, but he did not expect this to be just a small group of competitors fighting for the business or having the business. It's almost like another arm of the government really, the Office of Cannabis Management. Interesting. That's what it's called. I will definitely take a look at that article for sure. Yeah. Um, And I guess um, now that marijuana is legalized in New York State, should we allow local marijuana dispensaries? I mean, should we encourage it 
locally in our towns. Each town can opt out before December 31st. And I guess I want to bring up the old maxim about keeping your friends close and your enemies closer. So would there be a benefit to having some local control over it? Um, I also want to point out in my interview with the vice president of the dispensary in Massachusetts called Theory Wellness, that he brought up a concern about fueling the black market in New York State. He brought up, I guess, if you don't have enough cultivation sites and you have a supply and demand problem, that actually legalizing it could fuel the black market. So, Mm. you know, is there concern over that as well? Just curious your thoughts about that. I understand that in Colorado that did happen. And also some other things I was reading about getting a little bit more informed on this the dispensaries is that it was so expensive in the dispensaries that people went back to the black market for it. Okay. I am against dispensaries, obviously. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm against the legalization, so I'm against the dispensaries as well. I want to point out as a fellow parent that you, you know, I said this at the beginning of this interview, you absolutely experienced the worst tragedy imaginable that any parent could possibly experience. You know, we've spent some time together at various events. I remember walking in, I was a little bit behind you, walking in uh, with you and your husband, Steve, at an award ceremony where you were receiving an award for your leadership in with the drug crisis in our backyard. And I witnessed the affection and love that you and your husband have for one another. Uh, and I also note that too often the tragedy of losing a child can really break families apart. But you and your husband have really been brave warriors in combating this addiction, this disease, this war. You know, you lost a horrible battle, obviously. You lost this battle with losing Justin, um, but you seem determined to win this war. Please tell me how you have that emotional energy to move forward in this war. Yeah, that's a good question, <laughs> Brett. Um, I have a lot of friends around me that uh, help, and the work isn't done, but there are other groups coming up to help. So there's, for example, Hope Not Handcuffs is now in Putnam County. So that's a new group. There's enough death, addiction and death to go around. So it doesn't matter if there's 10 groups. I mean, we're not competing with each other. I found that when I first came out on the scene here, that I felt like it was very territorial. You know, Mm. people didn't want to embrace drug crisis in our backyard, although some people did. So to me, it's the more people are out there talking about this, the better, because then it takes the, the weight off of drug crisis in our backyard or me, because I'm running the show and I'm the executive director and we don't have any employees, it takes it off me to do it alone. So we have the Prevention Council of Putnam. They do a fabulous job. They have a lot of resources available. We have Cove Care that has the Family Support Navigator Program. Uh, We have Drug Crisis that does the support groups. I mostly work with families, but I am connected to a lot of treatment facilities. So I know about them. And I know who to call if somebody wants to get in one of those treatment facilities. So spreading the wealth, so to speak, is a way to take it off my shoulders because it is a heavy load. It's nine years this May. You know, it's hard. Yeah. May, what's the anniversary of? of May 29th, 2012. So it's nine years, May 29th. And I was excited. You've been just such a great supporter of our organization. And without your support, we wouldn't have been able to do what we've done. I'll tell you the truth. And uh, we have our run again this year in September, and it's going to be a hybrid run. So we're going to be there in FDR Park, September 25th. And that's our only fundraiser. We raise money by 
uh, private contributions to our organization. And the money is used solely and completely for to help people who are struggling with this and their families. We don't take any money out of the organization. Susan, you know, obviously I run a media business, but I will tell you, even though it's a business that I run, I will say that supporting your organization and just hearing what you said, it makes me feel good about what my business has been able to do. So I know I appreciate that. Um, and you know, what you've done in the community is absolutely incredible. You know, obviously people can have differences of opinion on some of the details, but what you've done is absolutely just, uh, you know, you and your husband and, and the organization uh, you've started with uh, the Christiansons has just been a tremendous um, thing for New York State, for Putnam County and Westchester County. And I'm sure that you've saved lives. And uh, for us to be a tiny part of just helping promote you, you know, I, I do feel good about that. So, so thank you. And uh, I, I want to thank you for your friendship. I want to thank you for being at the forefront in New York State in terms of addressing the opioid epidemic. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, no, not really. Okay. <laughs> I appreciate you having me on. I'm looking forward to any future podcast you're going to have. I'm excited for you and this new endeavor. And we'll be staying in touch because we live here. Thank you, Susan. I appreciate that. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you.